Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 9 of Captain's Courageous This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling Chapter 9 Whatever his private sorrows may be, a multimillionaire, like any other working man, should keep abreast of his business. Harvey Shane, Sr., had gone east late in June to meet a woman broken down, half-mad, who dreamed day and night of her son drowning in the grey seas. He had surrounded her with doctors, trained nurses, massage women, and even faith-cure companions, but they were useless. Mrs. Shane lay still and moaned, or talked of her boy by the hour together to any one who would listen. Hope she had none, and who could offer it? All she needed was assurance that drowning did not hurt, and her husband watched to guard lest she should make the experiment. Of his own sorrow he spoke little, hardly realized the depth of it till he caught himself asking the calendar on his writing-desk, what's the use of going on? There had always lain a pleasant notion at the back of his head that, some day, when he had rounded off everything and the boy had left college, he would take his son to his heart and lead him into his possessions. Then that boy, he argued, as busy fathers do, would instantly become his companion, partner, and ally, and there would follow splendid years of great works carried out together, the old head backing the young fire. Now. His boy was dead, lost at sea, as it might have been a Swede sailor from one of Shane's big tea-ships. The wife was dying, or worse. He himself was trodden down by platoons of women and doctors and maids and attendants, worried almost beyond endurance by the shift and change of her poor restless whims, hopeless, with no heart to meet his many enemies. He had taken the wife to his raw new palace in San Diego, where she and her people occupied a wing of great price, and Shane, in a veranda room, between a secretary and a typewriter, who was also a telegraphist, toiled along wearily from day to day. There was a war of rates among four western railroads in which he was supposed to be interested. A devastating strike had developed in his lumber camps in Oregon and the legislature of the state of California, 
which has no love for its makers, was preparing open war against him. Ordinarily he would have accepted battle ere it was offered, and have waged a pleasant and unscrupulous campaign. But now he sat limply, his soft black hat pushed forward on to his nose, his big body shrunk inside his loose clothes, staring at his boots or the Chinese junks in the bay, and assenting absently to the secretary's questions as he opened the Saturday mail. Shane was wondering how much it would cost to drop everything and pull out. He carried huge insurances, could buy himself royal annuities, and between one of his places in Colorado and a little society, that would do the wife good. Say, in Washington and the South Carolina Islands, a man might forget plans that had come to nothing. On the other hand... The click of the typewriter stopped. The girl was looking at the secretary, who had turned white. He passed Shane a telegram repeated from San Francisco. Picked up by fishing schooner, we're here, having fallen off boat. Great times on banks fishing. All well. Waiting Gloucester Mass. Care Disco Troop. For money or orders wire. What shall do, and how is Mama? Harvey N. Shane. The father let it fall, laid his head down on the roller-top of the shut desk, and breathed heavily. The secretary ran for Mrs. Shane's doctor, who found Shane pacing to and fro. Well, "'What do you think of it? Is it possible? Is there any meaning to it? I can't quite make it out!' he cried. "'I can,' said the doctor. "'I lose seven thousand a year, that's all.' He thought of the struggling New York practice he had dropped at Shane's imperious bidding, and returned the telegram with a sigh. "'You mean you'd tell her? Maybe a fraud?' "'What's the motive?' said the doctor coolly. "'Detection's too certain. It's the boy, sure enough.' Enter a French maid impudently, as an indispensable one who is kept on only by large wages. Mrs. Shane, she say you must come at once. She think you are sick. The master of thirty millions bowed his head meekly and followed Suzanne, and a thin high voice on the upper landing of the great white wood square staircase cried, What is it? What has happened? No doors could keep out the shriek that rang through the echoing house a moment later, when her husband blurted out the news. "'And that's all right,' said the doctor, serenely, to the typewriter. "'About the only medical statement in novels with any truth to it is that joy don't kill, Miss Kinsey.' "'I know it, but we've a heap to do first. Miss Kinsey was from Milwaukee, somewhat direct of speech, and as her fancy leaned towards the secretary, she divined there was work in hand. He was looking earnestly at the vast roller map of America on the wall. Milsom, we're going right across. Private car, straight through. Boston, fix the connections, shouted Shane down the staircase. I thought so. The secretary turned to the typewriter, and their eyes met. Out of that was born a story, nothing to do with this story. She looked inquiringly, doubtful of his resources. 
He signed to her to move to the Morse as a general brings brigades into action. Then he swept his hand, musician-wise, through his hair, regarded the ceiling, and set to work while Miss Kinsey's white fingers called up the continent of America. K. H. Wade, Los Angeles. The Constance is at Los Angeles, isn't she, Miss Kinsey? Yep. Miss Kinsey nodded between clicks as the secretary looked at his watch. Ready? Send Constance, private car, here, and arrange for special to leave here Sunday, in time to connect with New York Limited at 16th Street, Chicago, Tuesday next. Click, click, click. Couldn't you better that? Not on those grades. That gives them sixty hours from here to Chicago. They won't gain anything by taking a special east of that. Ready? Also arrange with Lakeshore and Michigan Southern to take Constance on New York Central and Hudson River Buffalo to Albany, and B&A, the same Albany, to Boston. Indispensable I should reach Boston Wednesday evening. Be sure nothing prevents. Have also wired Caniff, Tusi, and Barnes. Sign, Shane. Miss Kinsey nodded, and the secretary went on. Now then. Caniff, Tusi, and Barnes, of course. Ready? Caniff, Chicago. Please take my private car, Constance, from Santa Fe at 16th Street next Tuesday p.m. on New York Limited through to Buffalo, and deliver New York Central for Albany. Ever been to New York, Miss Kinsey? We'll go some day. Ready? Take car Buffalo to Albany on Limited Tuesday p.m. That's for Tusi. Haven't been to New York, but I know that, with a toss of the head. Beg pardon. Now, Boston and Albany, Barnes. Same instructions from Albany through to Boston. Leave 3.5 p.m. You needn't wire that. Arrive 9.5 p.m. Wednesday. That covers everything Wade will do, but it pays to shake up the managers. It's great, said Miss Kinsey, with a look of admiration. This was the kind of man she understood and appreciated. "'Tisn't bad,' said Milsom, modestly. "'Now, any one but me would have lost thirty hours and spent a week working out the run, instead of handing him over to the Santa Fe straight through to Chicago. "'But see here, about that New York Limited. Chauncey Depew himself couldn't hitch his car to her,' Miss Kinsey suggested, recovering herself. "'Yes, but this isn't Chauncey.' It's Shane Lightning. It goes. Even so. Guess we'd better wire the boy. You'd forgotten that, anyhow. I'll ask. When he returned with the father's message bidding Harvey meet them in Boston at an appointed hour, he found Miss Kinsey laughing over the keys. Then Milsom laughed, too, for the frantic clicks from Los Angeles ran, We want to know why, why, why general uneasiness developed and spreading. Ten minutes later Chicago appealed to Miss Kinsey in these words. If crime of century is maturing, please warn friends in time. We are all getting to cover here. This was capped by a message from Topeka, and wherein Topeka was concerned even Milsom could not guess. Don't shoot, Colonel. We'll come down. Shane smiled grimly at the consternation of his enemies when the telegrams were laid before him. They think we're on the warpath. Tell them we don't feel like fighting just now, Milsom. 
Tell em what we're going for. I guess you and Miss Kinsey had better come along, though it isn't likely I shall do any business on the road. Tell em the truth. For once. So the truth was told. Miss Kinsey clicked in the sentiment while the secretary added the memorable quotation, Let us have peace. And in boardrooms two thousand miles away the representatives of sixty-three million dollars worth of variously manipulated railroad interests breathed more freely. Shane was flying to meet the only son so miraculously restored to him. The bear was seeking his cub, not the bulls. Hard men who had their knives drawn to fight for their financial lives, put away the weapons and wished him Godspeed, while half a dozen panic-smitten tin-pot roads perked up their heads and spoke of the wonderful things they would have done had not Shane buried the hatchet. It was a busy weekend among the wires, for, now that their anxiety was removed, men and cities hastened to accommodate. Los Angeles called to San Diego and Barstow, that the Southern California engineers might know and be ready in their lonely roundhouses. Barstow passed the word to the Atlantic and Pacific. The Albuquerque flung it the whole length of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe management, even into Chicago. An engine, combination car with crew, and the great and gilded Constance private car were to be expedited over those two thousand three hundred and fifty miles. The train would take precedence of one hundred and seventy-seven others meeting and passing. Dispatches and crews of every one of those said trains must be notified. Sixteen locomotives, sixteen engineers, and sixteen firemen would be needed, each and every one the best available. Two and one-half minutes would be allowed for changing engines, three for watering, and two for coaling. Warn the men, and arrange tanks and chutes accordingly for Harvey Shane is in a hurry. A hurry! A hurry! sang the wires. Forty miles an hour will be expected, and division superintendents will accompany this special over their respective divisions. From San Diego to 16th Street, Chicago, let the magic carpet be laid down. Hurry! Oh, hurry! It will be hot, said Shane, as they rolled out of San Diego in the dawn of Sunday. We're going to hurry, Mama, just as fast as ever we can. But I really don't think there's any good of your putting on your bonnet and gloves yet. You'd much better lie down and take your medicine. I'd play you a game of dominoes, but it's Sunday. I'll be good. Oh, I will be good. Only taking off my bonnet makes me feel as if we'd never get there. Try to sleep a little, Mama, and we'll be in Chicago before you know. But it's Boston, father. Tell them to hurry. The six-foot drivers were hammering their way to San Bernardino and the Mojave Wastes, but this was no grade for speed. That would come later. The heat of the desert followed the heat of the hills as they turned east to the Needles and the Colorado River. The car cracked in the utter drought and glare, and they put crushed ice to Mrs. Shane's neck, and toiled up the long, long grades past Ash Fork, towards Flagstaff, where the forests and quarries are, under the dry, remote skies. The needle of the speed indicator flicked and wagged to and fro, the cinders rattled on the roof, and a whirl of dust sucked after the whirring wheels. The crew of the combination sat on their bunks, panting in their shirt-sleeves, 
and Shane found himself among them shouting old, old stories of the railroad that every trainman knows, above the roar of the car. He told them about his son, and how the sea had given up its dead, and they nodded and spat and rejoiced with him, asked after her back there, and whether she could stand it if the engineer let her out a piece, and Shane thought she could. Accordingly the great fire-horse was let out from Flagstaff to Winslow, till a division superintendent protested. But Mrs. Shane, in the boudoir stateroom, where the French maid, sallow white with fear, clung to the silver door-handle, only moaned a little and begged her husband to bid them hurry. And so they dropped the dry sands and moonstruck rocks of Arizona behind them, and grilled on till the crash of the couplings and the wheeze of the break-hose told them they were at Coolidge by the Continental Divide. Three bold and experienced men, cool, confident, and dry when they began, white, quivering, and wet when they finished their trick at those terrible wheels, swung her over the great lift from Albuquerque to Glorietta and beyond Springer, up and up to the Rattan Tunnel on the state line, whence they dropped rocking into La Junta, had sight of the Arkansas, and tore down the long slope to Dodge City where Shane took comfort once again from setting his watch an hour ahead. There was very little talk in the car. The secretary and typewriter sat together on the stamped Spanish leather cushions by the plate-glass observation window at the rear end, watching the surge and ripple of the ties crowded back behind them, and, it is believed, making notes of the scenery. Shane moved nervously between his own extravagant gorgeousness and the naked necessity of the combination, an unlit cigar in his teeth, till the pitying crews forgot that he was their tribal enemy, and did their best to entertain him. At night the bunched electrics lit up that distressful palace of all the luxuries, and they fared sumptuously, swinging on through the emptiness of abject desolation. Now they heard the swish of a water-tank, and the guttural voice of a Chinaman, the clink-clink of hammers that tested the Krupp-steel wheels, and the oath of a tramp chased off the rear platform. Now the solid crash of coal shot into the tender, and now a beating back of noises as they flew past a waiting train. Now they looked out into great abysses, a trestle purring beneath their tread or up to rocks that barred out half the stars. Now Scour and Ravine changed and rolled back to jagged mountains on the horizon's edge, and now broken to hills lower and lower, till at last came the true plains. At Dodge City an unknown hand threw in a copy of a Kansas paper, containing some sort of an interview with Harvey, who had evidently fallen in with an enterprising reporter, telegraphed on from Boston. The joyful journalese revealed that it was beyond question their boy, and it soothed Mrs. Shane for a while. Her one word, hurry, was conveyed by the crews to the engineers at Nickerson, Topeka, and Marceline, where the grades are easy, and they brushed the continent behind them. Towns and villages were close together now, and a man could feel here that he moved among people. I can't see the dial, and my eyes ache so. What are we doing? The very best we can, Mama. There's no sense in getting in before the limited. We'd only have to wait. 
I don't care. I want to feel we're moving. Sit down and tell me the miles." Shane sat down and read the dial for her. There were some miles which stand for records to this day. But the seventy-foot car never changed its long, steamer-like roll, moving through the heat with the hum of a giant bee. Yet the speed was not enough for Mrs. Shane, and the heat, the remorseless August heat, was making her giddy. The clock-hands would not move, and when, oh, when would they be in Chicago? It is not true that, as they changed engines at Fort Madison, Shane passed over to the Amalgamated Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers an endowment sufficient to enable them to fight him and his fellows, on equal terms forevermore. He paid his obligations to engineers and firemen as he believed they deserved, and only his bank knows what he gave the crews who had sympathized with him. It is on record that the last crew took entire charge of switching operations at 16th Street, because she was in a doze at last, and heaven was to help anyone who bumped her. Now the highly paid specialist who conveys the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Limited from Chicago to Elkhart is something of an autocrat, and he does not approve of being told how to back up to a car. None the less he handled the Constance as she might have been a load of dynamite, and when the crew rebuked him they did it in whispers and dumb show. Pshaw, said the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe men, discussing life later, we weren't running for a record. Harvey Shane's wife, she were sick back, and we didn't want to jounce her. Come to think of it, our running time from San Diego to Chicago was fifty-seven hours, fifty-four minutes. You can tell that to them eastern way trains. When we're trying for a record, we'll let you know. To the western man, though this would not please either city, Chicago and Boston are cheek by jowl, and some railroads encourage the delusion. The Limited whirled the Constance into Buffalo, and the arms of the New York Central and Hudson River, illustrious magnets with white whiskers and gold charms on their watch-chains, boarded her here to talk a little business to Shane, who slid her gracefully into Albany, where the Boston and Albany completed the run from Tidewater to Tidewater. Total time, eighty-seven hours and thirty-five minutes, or three days, fifteen hours and one-half. Harvey was waiting for them. After violent emotion, most people and all boys demand food. They feasted the returned prodigal behind drawn curtains, cut off in their great happiness, while the trains roared in and out around them. Harvey ate, drank, and enlarged on his adventures all in one breath, and when he had a hand free his mother fondled it. His voice was thickened with living in the open salt air, his palms were rough and hard his wrists dotted with the marks of gurry sores, and a fine full flavour of codfish hung round rubber boots and blue jersey. The father, well used to judging men, looked at him keenly. He did not know what enduring harm the boy might have taken. Indeed, he caught himself thinking that he knew very little whatever of his son, but he distinctly remembered an unsatisfied, dough-faced youth who took delight in calling down the old man, and reducing his mother to tears. Such a person as adds to the gaiety of public rooms and hotel piazzas, where the ingenuous young of the wealthy play with or revile the bell-boys. 
but this well-set-up fisher youth did not wriggle, looked at him with eyes steady, clear, and unflinching, and spoke in a tone distinctly, even startlingly, respectful. There was that in his voice, too, which seemed to promise that the change might be permanent, and that the new Harvey had come to stay. Someone's been coercing him, thought Shane. Now Constance would never have allowed that. Don't see as Europe could have done it any better. "'But why didn't you tell this man, Troop, who you were?' the mother repeated, when Harvey had expanded his story at least twice. "'Disco Troop, dear, the best man that ever walked a deck. I don't care who the next is.' "'Why didn't you tell him to put you ashore? You know Papa would have made it up to him ten times over.' "'I know it, but he thought I was crazy.' I'm afraid I called him a thief because I couldn't find the bills in my pocket. "'A sailor found them by the flagstaff that—that that night,' sobbed Mrs. Shane. "'That explains it, then. I don't blame Troop any. I just said I wouldn't work—on a banker, too. And of course he hit me on the nose, and, oh, I bled like a stuck hog. "'My poor darling! They must have abused you horribly!' Dunno quite. Well, after that I saw a light." Shane slapped his leg and chuckled. This was going to be a boy after his own hungry heart. He had never seen precisely that twinkle in Harvey's eye before. "'And the old man gave me ten and a half a month. He's paid me half now, and I took hold with Dan and pitched right in. I can't do a man's work yet, but I can handle a dory most as well as Dan and I don't get rattled in a fog—much, and I can take my trick in light winds—that's steering, dear—and I can most bait up a trawl, and I know my ropes, of course, and I can pitch fish till the cows come home, and I'm great on old Josephus, and I'll show you how I can clear coffee with a piece of fish-skin, and—I think I'll have another cup, please. Say, you've no notion what a heap of work there is in ten and a half a month." I began with eight and a half, my son," said Shane. "'That's so. You never told me, sir.' "'You never asked, Harve. I'll tell you about it some day, if you care to listen. Try a stuffed olive.' Troop says the most interesting thing in the world is to find out how the next man gets his vittles. It's great to have a trimmed-up meal again. We were well fed, though. Best mug on the banks. Disco fed us first class. He's a great man. And Dan—that's his son—Dan's my partner. And there's Uncle Salters and his manures, and he reads Josephus. He's sure I'm crazy yet. And there's poor little Penn, and he is crazy. You mustn't talk to him about Johnstown, because—oh, and oh, you must know Tom Platt and Long Jack and Manuel. Manuel saved my life. I'm sorry he's a Portuguese. He can't talk much, but he's an everlasting musician. He found me stuck adrift and drifting, and hauled me in." "'I wonder your nervous system isn't completely wrecked,' said Mrs. Shane. "'What for, Mama? I worked like a horse, and I ate like a hog, and I slept like a dead man.' That was too much for Mrs. Shane, who began to think of her visions of a corpse rocking on the salty seas. She went to her state-room and Harvey curled up beside his father, explaining his indebtedness. 
You can depend upon me to do everything I can for the crowd, Harve. They seem to be good men on your showing." "'Best in the fleet, sir. Ask at Gloucester,' said Harvey. But Disco believes, still, he's cured me of being crazy. Dan's the only one I've let on to about you, and our private cars and all the rest of it, and I'm not quite sure Dan believes. I want to paralyze him to-morrow. Say, can't we run the Constance over to Gloucester? Mama don't look fit to be moved, anyway, and we're bound to finish cleaning out by to-morrow. Wooverman takes our fish. You see, we're first off the banks this season, and it's four twenty-five a quintal. We held out till he paid it. They want it quick. You mean you'll have to work to-morrow, then? I told Troop I would. I'm on the scales. I've brought the tallies with me. He looked at the greasy notebook with an air of importance that made his father choke. There isn't but three, no, two ninety-four or five quintal more by my reckoning. Hire a substitute, suggested Shane, to see what Harvey would say. Can't, sir. I'm tallyman for the schooner. Troop says I've a better head for figures than Dan. Troop's a mighty just man. Well, suppose I don't move the Constance to-night. How'll you fix it? Harvey looked at the clock, which marked twenty past eleven. Then I'll sleep here till three, and catch the four o'clock freight. They'll let us men from the fleet ride free, as a rule. That's a notion. But I think we can get the Constance around about as soon as your men's freight. Better go to bed now. Harvey spread himself on the sofa, kicked off his boots, and was asleep before his father could shade the electrics. Shane sat watching the young face under the shadow of the arm thrown over his forehead, and among many things that occurred to him was the notion that he might perhaps have been neglectful as a father. "'One never knows when one's taking one's biggest risks,' he said. "'It might have been worse than drowning, but I don't think it has.' I don't think it has. If it hasn't, I haven't enough to pay troop, that's all. And I don't think it has." Morning brought a fresh sea breeze through the windows. The Constance was sidetracked among freight cars at Gloucester, and Harvey had gone to his business. "'Then he'll fall overboard again and be drowned,' the mother said bitterly. "'We'll go and look, ready to throw him a rope in case. You've never seen him working for his bread.' said the father. What nonsense! As if any one expected— Well, the man that hired him did. He's about right, too. They went down between the stores full of fishermen's oilskins to Wooverman's Wharf, where the weir here rode high, her bank flag still flying, all hands busy as beavers in the glorious morning light. Disco stood by the main hatch, superintending Manuel, Penn, and Uncle Salters at the tackle. Dan was swinging the loaded baskets inboard as Long Jack and Tom Platt filled them, and Harvey, with a notebook, represented the skipper's interest before the clerk of the scales on the salt-sprinkled wharf-edge. "'Ready!' cried the voices below. "'Haul!' cried Disco. "'Hi!' said Manuel. "'Here!' said Dan, swinging the basket. Then they heard Harvey's voice, clear and fresh, checking the weights. The last of the fish had been whipped out, and Harvey leaped from the string-piece six feet to a ratline, as the shortest way to hand Disco the tally, shouting, 
Two ninety-seven and an empty hold. What's total, Harve? said Disco. Eight sixty-five. Three thousand six hundred and seventy-six dollars and a quarter. Wish I'd share as well as wage. Well, I won't go so far as to say you haven't deserved it, Harve. Don't you want to slip up to Wooverman's office and take him our tallies? Who's that boy? said Shane to Dan, well used to all manner of questions from those idle imbeciles called summer boarders. Well, he's a kind of supercargo, was the answer. We picked him up stuck adrift on the banks. Fell overboard from a liner, he says. He was a passenger. He's by way of being a fisherman now. Is he worth his keep? Yep. Dad, this man wants to know if Harve's worth his keep. Say, would you like to go aboard? We'll fix a ladder for her. I should very much, indeed. T'won't hurt you, Mama, and you'll be able to see for yourself. The woman who could not lift her head a week ago scrambled down the ladder and stood aghast amid the mess and tangle aft. Be you anyways interested in Harve? said Disco. Well, yes. He's a good boy, and catches right hold just as he's bid. You've heard how we found him. He was suffering from nervous prostration, I guess, or else his head had hit something when we hauled him aboard. He's all over that now. Yes, this is the cabin. Taint anyways in order, but you're quite welcome to look around. Those are his figures on the stovepipe where we keep the reckoning mostly. Did he sleep here? said Mrs. Shane, sitting on a yellow locker and surveying the disorderly bunks. No, he berthed forward, madam, and only for him and my boy hooking fried pies and mugging up when they ought to have been asleep. I dunno as I've had any special fault to find with him. There weren't nothing wrong with Harve, said Uncle Salters, descending the steps. He hung my boots on the main truck, and he ain't over and above respectful to such as knows more'n he do, especially about farmin', but he were mostly misled by Dan. Dan, in the meantime, profiting by dark hints from Harvey early that morning, was executing a war-dance on deck. "'Tom! Tom!' he whispered down the hatch. "'His folks has come, and Dad hain't caught on yet.' and they're pow-wowing in the cabin. She's a daisy, and he's all Harve claimed he was by the looks of him." "'Holy smoke!' said Long Jack, climbing out covered with salt and fish-skin. "'Do you believe his tale of the kid in the little four-horse rig was true?' "'I knew it all along,' said Dan. "'Come and see Dad mistook in his judgments.' They came delightedly, just in time to hear Shane say, I'm glad he has a good character, because he's my son." Disco's jaw fell. Long Jack always vowed that he heard the click of it, and he stared alternately at the man and the woman. I got his telegram in San Diego four days ago, and we came over. "'In a private car?' said Dan. "'He said you might.' "'In a private car, of course.' Dan looked at his father with a hurricane of irreverent winks. "'There was a tale he told us of driving four little ponies in a rig of his own,' said Long Jack. "'Was that true, now?' "'Very likely,' said Shane. "'Was it, Mama?' 
"'He had a little drag when we were in Toledo, I think,' said the mother. Long Jack whistled. "'Oh, Disco!' said he, and that was all. "'I was, I am, mistook in my judgments, worsen the men of Marblehead,' said Disco, as though the words were being windlassed out of him. "'I don't mind owning to you, Mr. Shane, as I mistrusted the boy to be crazy. He talked kinder odd about money.' "'So he told me.' "'Did he tell you anything else? Cause I pounded him once.' This with a somewhat anxious glance at Mrs. Shane. "'Oh, yes,' Shane replied. "'I should say it probably did him more good than anything else in the world.' I judged twas necessary, or wouldn't a done it. I don't want you to think we abuse our boys any on this packet. I don't think you do, Mr. Troop. Mrs. Shane had been looking at the faces. Disco's ivory-yellow, hairless, iron countenance, Uncle Salters's, with its rim of agricultural hair, Penn's bewildered simplicity, Manuel's quiet smile, Long Jack's grin of delight and Tom Platt's scar. Rough by her standards, they certainly were, but she had a mother's wits in her eyes, and she rose with outstretched hands. "'Oh, tell me, which is who?' said she, half-sobbing. "'I want to thank you, and bless you, all of you.' "'Faith, that pays me a hundred times,' said Long Jack. Disco introduced them all in due form. The captain of an old-time Chinaman could have done no better, and Mrs. Shane babbled incoherently. She nearly threw herself into Manuel's arms when she understood that he had first found Harvey. "'But how shall I leave him drift?' said poor Manuel. "'What do you yourself, if you find him so, eh, what? We are in one good boy, and I am ever so pleased he come to be your son.' "'And he told me Dan was his partner,' she cried. Dan was already sufficiently pink, but he turned a rich crimson when Mrs. Shane kissed him on both cheeks before the assembly. Then they led her forward to show her the forecastle, at which she wept again, and must needs go down to see Harvey's identical bunk, and there she found the nigger cook cleaning up the stove, and he nodded as though she were someone he had expected to meet for years. They tried— two at a time, to explain the boat's daily life to her, and she sat by the pall-post, her gloved hands on the greasy table, laughing with trembling lips and crying with dancing eyes. "'And who's ever to use the weir here after this?' said Long Jack to Tom Platt. "'I feel it as if she'd made a cathedral of it all.' "'Cathedral!' sneered Tom Platt. Oh, if it had ever been the fish commission boat instead of this ballyhoo of blazes! If we only had some decency and order and side-boys when she goes over! She'll have to climb that ladder like a hen, and we, we ought to be men in the yards!' "'Then Harvey was not mad,' said Penn, slowly, to Shane. "'No, indeed, thank God!' the big millionaire replied, stooping down tenderly. It must be terrible to be mad, except to lose your child. I do not know anything more terrible. But your child has come back? Let us thank God for that. Hello, 
said Harvey, looking down upon them benignly from the wharf. "'I was mistook, Harv. I was mistook,' said Disco, swiftly, holding up a hand. "'I was mistook in my judgments. You needn't rub it in any more.' "'Guess I'll take care of that,' said Dan, under his breath. "'You'll be going off now, won't you?' "'Well, not without the balance of my wages, lest you want to have the we're here attached.' "'That's so. I'd clean forgot.' and he counted out the remaining dollars. "'You done all you contracted to do, Harve, and you done it bout as well as if you'd been brought up.' Here Disco brought himself up. He did not quite see where the sentence was going to end. "'Outside of a private car?' suggested Dan wickedly. "'Come on, and I'll show her to you,' said Harvey. Shane stayed to talk to Disco, but the others made a procession to the depot with Mrs. Shane at the head. The French maid shrieked at the invasion, and Harvey laid the glories of the Constance before them without a word. They took them in, in equal silence, stamped leather, silver door-handles and rails, cut velvet, plate-glass, nickel, bronze, hammered iron, and the rare woods of the continent inlaid. "'I told you,' said Harvey, "'I told you.' This was his crowning revenge, and a most ample one. Mrs. Shane decreed a meal, and that nothing might be lacking to the tale Long Jack told afterwards in his boarding-house, she waited on them herself. Men who are accustomed to eat at tiny tables in howling gales have curiously neat and finished table manners, but Mrs. Shane, who did not know this, was surprised. She longed to have Manuel for a butler so silently and easily did he comport himself among the frail glassware and dainty silver. Tom Platt remembered great days on the Ohio, and the manners of foreign potentates who dined with the officers, and Long Jack, being Irish, supplied the small talk till all were at their ease. In the Weirhear's cabin the fathers took stock of each other behind their cigars. Shane knew well enough when he dealt with a man to whom he could not offer money, Equally well he knew that no money could pay for what Disco had done. He kept his own counsel, and waited for an opening. "'I haven't done anything to your boy, or for your boy, except make him work a piece, and learn him how to handle the hog-yoke,' said Disco. "'He is twice my boy's head for figures.' "'By the way,' Shane answered casually, "'what do you calculate to make of your boy?' Disco removed his cigar, and waved it comprehensively round the cabin. "'Dan's just plain boy, and he don't allow me to do any of his thinking. He'll have this able little packet when I'm laid by. He ain't nowise anxious to quit the business. I know that.' "'Hm. Ever been west, Mr. Troop?' "'Been as far as New York once in a boat. I've no use for railroads. No more has Dan.' Salt water's good enough for the troops. I've been most everywhere, in the natural way, of course. I can give him all the salt water he's likely to need, till he's a skipper. How's that? I thought you was a kinder railroad king. Harve told me so when I was mistook in my judgments. We're all apt to be mistaken. I fancy perhaps you might know I own a line of tea-clippers.' 
San Francisco to Yokohama. Six of them, iron-built, about seventeen hundred and eighty tons apiece. Blame that boy! He never told. I'd a listened to that, instead of his truck about railroads and pony carriages. He didn't know. Little thing like that slipped his mind, I guess. No, I only capped up, uh, took hold of the Blue M freighters, Morgan and McQuaid's old line, this summer. Disco collapsed where he sat, beside the stove. Great Caesar Almighty! I mistrust I've been fooled from one end to the other. Why, Phil Earhart, he went from this very town six year back. No, seven. And he's made on the San Jose now. Twenty-six days was her time out. His sister, she's living here yet, and she reads his letters to my woman. And you own the Blue M freighters? Shane nodded. If I'd a known that, I'd a jerked the weir here back to port all standin' on the word. Perhaps that wouldn't have been so good for Harvey. If I'd only known, if he'd only said about the cussed line, I'd have understood. I'd never stand on my own judgments again, never. They're well-found packets. Phil Earhart, he says so. I'm glad to have a recommend from that quarter. Earhart's skipper of the San Jose now. What I was getting at is to know whether you'd lend me Dan for a year or two, and we'll see if we can't make a mate of him. Would you trust him to Earhart? It's a risk taking a raw boy. I know a man who did more for me. That's different. Look at here now. I ain't recommendin' Dan special because he's my own flesh and blood. I know bank ways ain't clipper ways, but he ain't much to learn. Steer he can, no boy better, if I say it, and the rest is in our blood and get. But I wish he weren't so cussed weak on navigation. Earhart will attend to that. He'll ship as a boy for a voyage or two, and then we can put him in the way of doing better. Suppose you take him in hand this winter, and I'll send for him early in the spring. I know the Pacific's a long ways off. Pshaw! <laughs> we troops, living and dead, are all around the earth and the seas thereof. But I want you to understand, and I mean this, any time you think you'd like to see him, tell me, and I'll attend to the transportation. Twon't cost you a cent. If you'll walk a piece with me, we'll go to my house and talk this to my woman. I've been so crazy mistook in all my judgments, it don't seem to me this was like to be real. They went over to Troop's eighteen-hundred-dollar, blue-trimmed white house, with a retired dory full of nasturtiums in the front yard, and a shuttered parlor that was a museum of oversea plunder. There sat a large woman, silent and grave, with the dim eyes of those who look long to see for the return of their beloved. Chain addressed himself to her, and she gave consent wearily. "'We lose one hundred a year from Gloucester only, Mr. Shane,' she said. "'One hundred boys and men, and I've come so as to hate the sea, as if twas alive and listening. God never made it for humans to anchor on. These packets of yours, they go straight out, I take it, and straight home again?' "'As straight as the winds let em, and I give a bonus for record passages. Tea don't improve by being at sea.' 
When he was little he used to play at keeping store, and I had hopes he might follow that up. But soon as he could paddle a dory I knew that were going to be denied me. This square riggers, mother, iron built and well found. Remember what Phil's sister reads you when she gets his letters? I've never known as Phil told lies, but he's too venturesome, like most of em that use the sea. If Dan sees fit, Mr. Shane, he can go, for all of me. She just despises the ocean, Disco explained, and I, I don't know how to act polite, I guess, or I'd thank you better. My father, my own eldest brother, two nephews, and my second sister's man, she said, dropping her head on her hand. Would you care for any one that took all those? Shane was relieved when Dan turned up, and accepted with more delight than he was able to put into words. Indeed, the offer meant a plain and sure road to all desirable things. But Dan thought most of commanding watch on broad decks and looking into faraway harbors. Mrs. Shane had spoken privately to the unaccountable Manuel in the matter of Harvey's rescue. He seemed to have no desire for money. Pressed hard, he said that he would take five dollars, because he wanted to buy something for a girl. Otherwise, how shall I take money when I make so easy my eats and smokes? You will give us some if I like or no. Eh, what? Then you shall give me money, but not that way. You shall give all you can think. He introduced her to a snuffy Portuguese priest with a list of semi-destitute widows as long as his cassock. As a strict Unitarian, Mrs. Shane could not sympathize with the creed, but she ended by respecting the brown, voluble little man. Manuel, faithful son of the Church, appropriated all the blessings showered on her for her charity. "'That let a me out,' said he. "'I have now very good absolutions for six months.' and he strolled forth to get a handkerchief for the girl of the hour, and to break the hearts of all the others. Salters went west for a season with Penn, and left no address behind. He had a dread that these millionary people, with wasteful private cars, might take undue interest in his companion. It was better to visit inland relatives till the coast was clear. "'Never you'll be adopted by rich folk, Penn!' he said in the cars, or I'll take and break this checkerboard o'er your head. If you forget your name again, which is Pratt, you remember you belong with Salter's Troop, and set down right where you are till I come for you. Don't go tagging around after them whose eyes bung out with fatness according to Scripture. End of chapter Chapter Ten of Captain's Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Ten. 
But it was otherwise with the Weir Hear's silent cook, for he came up, his kit in a handkerchief, and boarded the Constance. Pay was no particular object, and he did not in the least care where he slept. His business, as revealed to him in dreams, was to follow Harvey for the rest of his days. They tried argument, and, at last, persuasion, but there is a difference between one Cape Breton and two Alabama Negroes, and the matter was referred to Shane by the cook and porter. The millionaire only laughed. He presumed Harvey might need a body-servant some day or other, and was sure that one volunteer was worth five hirelings. Let the man stay, therefore, even though he called himself MacDonald and swore in Gaelic. The car could go back to Boston, where, if he were still of the same mind, they would take him west. With the Constance, which in his heart of hearts he loathed, departed the last remnant of Shane's millionairedom, and he gave himself up to an energetic idleness. This Gloucester was a new town and a new land, and he purposed to take it in, as of old he had taken in all the cities from Snohomish to San Diego of that world whence he hailed. They made money along the crooked street which was half wharf and half ship's store. As a leading professional he wished to learn how the noble game was played. Men said that four out of every five fish-balls served at New England's Sunday breakfast came from Gloucester, and overwhelmed him with figures in proof. Statistics of boats, gear, wharf-frontage, capital invested, salting, packing, factories, insurance, wages, repairs, and profits. He talked with the owners of the large fleets, whose skippers were little more than hired men, and whose crews were almost all Swedes or Portuguese. Then he conferred with Disco, one of the few who owned their craft, and compared notes in his vast head. He coiled himself away on chain cables in marine junk-shops, asking questions with cheerful, unslaked western curiosity, till all the waterfront wanted to know what in thunder that man was after, anyhow! He prowled into the mutual insurance rooms, and demanded explanations of the mysterious remarks chalked up on the blackboard day by day, and that brought down upon him secretaries of every fisherman's widow and orphan aid society within the city limits. They begged shamelessly, each man anxious to beat the other institution's record and Shane tugged at his beard and handed them all over to Mrs. Shane. She was resting in a boarding-house near Eastern Point, a strange establishment, managed, apparently, by the boarders, where the tablecloths were red and white checkered, and the population, who seemed to have known one another intimately for years, rose up at midnight to make Welsh rarebits if it felt hungry. On the second morning of her stay, Mrs. Shane put away her diamond solitaires before she came down to breakfast. "'They're most delightful people,' she confided to her husband. "'So friendly, and simple, too, though they are all Boston, nearly.' "'That isn't simpleness, Mama," he said, looking across the boulders behind the apple-trees where the hammocks were slung. "'It's the other thing that we—that I haven't got.' "'It can't be,' said Mrs. Shane, quietly. "'There isn't a woman here owns a dress that cost a hundred dollars. Why, we—I know it, dear. We have—of course we have. I guess it's only the style they wear east. 
Are you having a good time? I don't see very much of Harvey. He's always with you. But I ain't near as nervous as I was. I haven't had such a good time since Willie died. I never rightly understood that I had a son before this. Harve's got to be a great boy. Anything I can fetch you, dear? Cushion under your head? Well, we'll go down to the wharf again and look around. Harvey was his father's shadow in those days, and the two strolled along side by side, Shane using the grades as an excuse for laying his hand on the boy's square shoulder. It was then that Harvey noticed and admired what had never struck him before, his father's curious power of getting at the heart of new matters as learned from men in the street. "'How do you make em tell you everything without opening your head?' demanded the son as they came out of a rigger's loft. "'I've dealt with quite a few men in my time, Harve, and one sizes em up somehow, I guess. I know something about myself, too.' Then, after a pause, as they sat down on a wharf-edge, men can most always tell when a man has handled things for himself, and then they treat him as one of themselves. Same as they treat me down at Wolverman's Wharf. I'm one of the crowd now. Disco has told everyone I've earned my pay. Harvey spread out his hands and rubbed the palms together. They're all soft again, he said dolefully. Keep em that way for the next few years, while you're getting your education. You can harden em up after." "'Yes, I suppose so,' was the reply, in no delighted voice. "'It rests with you, Harve. You can take cover behind your mamma, of course, and put her on to fussing about your nerves and your high-strungness and all that kind of poppycock.' "'Have I ever done that?' said Harvey, uneasily. His father turned where he sat, and thrust out a long hand. "'You know as well as I do that I can't make anything of you if you don't act straight by me. I can handle you alone if you'll stay alone, but I don't pretend to manage both you and Mama. Life's too short, anyway.' "'Don't make me out much of a fellow, does it?' "'I guess it was my fault a good deal, but if you want the truth, you haven't been much of anything up to date, now have you?' Hmm. Disco thinks. Say, what do you reckon it's cost you to raise me from the start, first, last, and all over?" Shane smiled. I've never kept track, but I should estimate, hmm, in dollars and cents, nearer fifty than forty thousand, maybe sixty. The young generation comes high. It has to have things, and it tires of them, and the old man foots the bill. Harvey whistled, but at heart he was rather pleased to think that his upbringing had cost so much. "'And all that's sunk capital, isn't it?' "'Invested, Harve. Invested, I hope.' "'Making it only thirty thousand. The thirty I've earned is about ten cents on the hundred. That's a mighty poor catch.' Harvey wagged his head solemnly. Shane laughed till he nearly fell off the pile into the water. "'Disco has got a heap more than that out of Dan since he was ten, and Dan's at school half the year, too.' "'Oh, that's what you're after, is it?' "'No, I'm not after anything. I'm not stuck on myself any just now. That's all. 
I ought to be kicked. I can't do it, old man, or I would, I presume, if I'd been made that way. Then I'd have remembered it to the last day I lived, and never forgiven you, said Harvey, his chin on his doubled fists. Exactly. That's about what I'd do. You see? I see. The fault's with me and no one else. All the same, something's got to be done about it. Shane drew a cigar from his vest pocket, bit off the end, and fell to smoking. Father and son were very much alike, for the beard hid Shane's mouth, and Harvey had his father's slightly aquiline nose, close-set black eyes, and narrow, high cheekbones. With a touch of brown paint he would have made up very picturesquely as a red Indian of the story-books. "'Now you can go on from here.' said Shane, slowly, costing me between six or eight thousand a year till you're a voter. Well, we'll call you a man, then. You can go right on from that, living on me to the tune of forty or fifty thousand, besides what your mother will give you, with a valet and a yacht, or a fancy ranch where you can pretend to raise trotting stock and play cards with your own crowd. Like Lori Tuck? Harvey put in. Yep, or the two De Vitre boys, or old man McQuaid's son. California's full of em, and here's an eastern sample while we're talking. A shiny black steam yacht, with mahogany deckhouse, nickel-plated binnacles, and pink and white striped awnings, puffed up the harbor, flying the burgee of some New York club. Two young men, in what they conceived to be sea costumes, were playing cards by the saloon skylight and a couple of women with red and blue parasols looked on and laughed noisily. "'Shouldn't care to be caught out in her in any sort of a breeze. No beam,' said Harvey, critically, as the yacht slowed to pick up her mooring buoy. "'They're having what stands them for a good time. I can give you that, and twice as much as that, Harv. How would you like it?' "'Caesar! There's no way to get a dinghy overside said Harvey, still intent on the yacht. If I couldn't slip a tackle better than that, I'd stay ashore. What if I don't? Stay ashore, or what? Yacht and ranch, and live on the old man, and get behind Mama when there's trouble, said Harvey, with a twinkle in his eye. Why, in that case, you come right in with me, my son. Ten dollars a month? Another twinkle. Not a cent more until you're worth it, and you won't begin to touch that for a few years. I'd sooner begin sweeping out the office. Isn't that how the big bugs start? And touch something now, then— I know it. We all feel that way. But I guess we can hire any sweeping we need. I made the same mistake myself of starting in too soon. Thirty million dollars worth of mistake, wasn't it? I'd risk it for that. I lost some, and I gained some, I'll tell you." Shane pulled his beard and smiled as he looked over the still water, and spoke away from Harvey, who presently began to be aware that his father was telling the story of his life. He talked in a low, even voice, without gesture and without expression, and it was a history for which a dozen leading journals would cheerfully have paid many dollars the story of forty years that was at the same time the story of the new west, 
whose story is yet to be written. It began with a kinless boy turned loose in Texas, and went on fantastically through a hundred changes and chops of life, the scenes shifting from state after western state, from cities that sprang up in a month and in a season utterly withered away, to wild ventures in wilder camps that are now laborious paved municipalities. It covered the building of three railroads and the deliberate wreck of a fourth. It told of steamers, townships, forests, and mines, and the men of every nation under heaven, manning, creating, hewing, and digging these. It touched on chances of gigantic wealth flung before eyes that could not see or missed by the merest accident of time and travel, and through the mad shift of things, sometimes on horseback, more often afoot, now rich, now poor, in and out, and back and forth, deckhand, trainhand, contractor, boarding-house-keeper, journalist, engineer, drummer, real-estate agent, politician, deadbeat, rumseller, mine-owner, speculator, cattleman or tramp, moved Harvey Shane, alert and quiet, seeking his own ends, and so he said, the glory and advancement of his country. He told of the faith that never deserted him, even when he hung on the ragged edge of despair, the faith that comes of knowing men and things. He enlarged, as though he were talking to himself, on his very great courage and resource at all times. The thing was so evident in the man's mind that he never even changed his tone. He described how he had bested his enemies, or forgiven them, exactly as they had bested or forgiven him in those careless days, how he had entreated, cajoled, and bullied towns, companies, and syndicates, all for their enduring good, crawled round, through, or over mountains and ravines dragging a string and hoop-iron railroad after him, and in the end how he had sat still while promiscuous communities tore the last fragments of his character to shreds. The tale held Harvey almost breathless, his head a little cocked to one side, his eyes fixed on his father's face, as the twilight deepened and the red cigar-end lit up the furrowed cheeks and heavy eyebrows. It seemed to him like watching a locomotive storming across country in the dark, a mile between each glare of the opened fire-door. But this locomotive could talk, and the words shook and stirred the boy to the core of his soul. At last Shane pitched away the cigar-butt, and the two sat in the dark over the lapping water. "'I've never told that to anyone before,' said the father. Harvey gasped. "'It's just the greatest thing that ever was,' said he. "'That's what I got. Now I'm coming to what I didn't get. It won't sound much of anything to you, but I don't wish you to be as old as I am before you find out. I can handle men, of course, and I'm no fool along my own lines, but—but but I can't compete with the man who has been taught. I've picked up as I went along and I guess it sticks out all over me." "'I've never seen it,' said the son, indignantly. "'You will, though, Harve, you will, just as soon as you're through college. Don't I know it? Don't I know the look on men's faces when they think me a—a a mucker, as they call it out here? 
I can break them to little pieces, yes, but I can't get back at em to hurt em where they live. I don't say they're way, way up, but I feel I'm way, way, way off somehow. Now you've got your chance. You've got to soak up all the learning that's around, and you'll live with a crowd that are doing the same thing. They'll be doing it for a few thousand dollars a year at most, but remember, you'll be doing it for millions. You'll learn law enough to look after your own property when I'm out of the light, and you'll have to be solid with the best men in the market. They are useful later. And above all, you'll have to stow away the plain, common, sit-down-with-your-chin-on-your-elbows book-learning. Nothing pays like that, Harve, and it's bound to pay more and more each year in our country, in business and in politics. You'll see." "'There's no sugar my end of the deal,' said Harvey. Four years at college. Wish I'd chosen the valet and the yacht.' "'Never mind, my son,' Shane insisted. You're investing your capital where it'll bring in the best returns, and I guess you won't find our property shrunk any when you're ready to take hold. Think it over, and let me know in the morning. Hurry, we'll be late for supper." As this was a business talk, there was no need for Harvey to tell his mother about it, and Shane naturally took the same point of view. But Mrs. Shane saw and feared, and was a little jealous. Her boy, who rode roughshod over her, was gone, and in his stead reigned a keen-faced youth, abnormally silent, who addressed most of his conversation to his father. She understood it was business, and therefore a matter beyond her premises. If she had any doubts, they were resolved when Shane went to Boston, and brought back a new diamond marquise ring. "'What have you two men been doing now?' she said with a weak little smile, as she turned it in the light. "'Talking. Just talking, Mama. There's nothing mean about Harvey.' There was not. The boy had made a treaty on his own account. Railroads, he explained gravely, interested him as little as lumber, real estate, or mining. What his soul yearned after was control of his father's newly purchased sailing-ships. If that could be promised him within what he conceived to be a reasonable time, he, for his part, guaranteed diligence and sobriety at college for four or five years. In vacation he was to be allowed full access to all details connected with the line. He had asked not more than two thousand questions about it. From his father's most private papers in the safe to the tug in San Francisco Harbor. "'It's a deal,' said Shane at the last. You'll alter your mind twenty times before you leave college, of course, but if you take hold of it in proper shape, and if you don't tie it up before you're twenty-three, I'll make the thing over to you. How's that, Harve?" "'Nope. Never pays to split up a going concern. There's too much competition in the world anyway, and Disco says blood-kin have to stick together. His crowd never go back on him. That's one reason, he says why they make such big fares. Say, the weir here goes off to the Georges on Monday. They don't stay long ashore, do they?" "'Well, we ought to be going, too, I guess. I've left my business hung up at loose ends between two oceans, and it's time to connect again. I just hate to do it, though. Haven't had a holiday like this for twenty years.' 
"'We can't go without seeing Disco off,' said Harvey. "'And Monday's Memorial Day. Let's stay over that, anyway.' "'What is this memorial business? They were talking about it at the boarding-house,' said Shane weakly. He, too, was not anxious to spoil the golden days. "'Well, as far as I can make out, this business is a sort of song-and-dance act, whacked up for the summer boarders. Disco don't think much of it, he says, because they take up a collection for the widows and orphans. Disco's independent. Haven't you noticed that?' "'Well, yes, a little. In spots. Is it a town show, then?' "'The summer convention is. They read out the names of the fellows drowned or gone astray since last time, and they make speeches and recite and all. Then, Disco says, the secretaries of the aid societies go into the back yard and fight over the catch. The real show, he says, is in the spring. The ministers all take a hand, then, and there aren't any summer boarders around. I see said Shane, with the brilliant and perfect comprehension of one born into and bred up to city pride. We'll stay over for Memorial Day, and get off in the afternoon. Guess I'll go down to Disco's and make him bring his crowd up before they sail. I'll have to stand with them, of course. Oh, that's it, is it? said Shane. I'm only a poor summer boarder, and you're a banker, full-blooded banker. Harvey called back as he boarded a trolley, and Shane went on with his blissful dreams for the future. Disco had no use for public functions where appeals were made for charity, but Harvey pleaded that the glory of the day would be lost, so far as he was concerned, if the we're-hears absented themselves. Then Disco made conditions. He had heard. It was astonishing how all the world knew all the world's business along the waterfront. He had heard that a Philadelphia actress-woman was going to take part in the exercises, and he mistrusted that she would deliver Skipper Ireson's ride. Personally, he had as little use for actresses as for summer boarders, but justice was justice, and though he himself—here Dan giggled—had once slipped up on a matter of judgment, this thing must not be. So Harvey came back to East Gloucester, and spent half a day explaining to an amused actress with a royal reputation on two seaboards the inwardness of the mistake she contemplated, and she admitted that it was justice, even as Disco had said. Shane knew by old experience what would happen, but anything of the nature of a public palaver was meat and drink to the man's soul. He saw the trolleys hurrying west in the hot, hazy morning full of women in light summer dresses, and white-faced straw-hatted men fresh from Boston desks, the stack of bicycles outside the post-office, the come-and-go of busy officials greeting one another, the slow flick and swash of bunting in the heavy air, and the important man with a hose sluicing the brick sidewalk. "'Mother,' he said suddenly, "'don't you remember, after Seattle was burned out, and they got her going again?" Mrs. Shane nodded, and looked critically down the crooked street. Like her husband, she understood these gatherings, all the west over, and compared them one against another. The fishermen began to mingle with the crowd about the town-hall doors, blue-jowled Portuguese, their women bareheaded or shawled for the most part. 
clear-eyed Nova Scotians, and men of the maritime provinces, French, Italians, Swedes, and Danes, with outside crews of coasting schooners, and everywhere women in black, who saluted one another with a gloomy pride, for this was their day of great days. And there were ministers of many creeds, pastors of great gilt-edged congregations, at the seaside for a rest, with shepherds of the regular work, from the priests of the church on the hill to bush-bearded ex-sailor Lutherans, hail fellow with the men of a score of boats. There were owners of lines of schooners, large contributors to the societies, and small men with their few craft pawned to the mastheads, with bankers and marine insurance agents, captains of tugs and water-boats, riggers, fitters, lumpers, salters, boat-builders, and coopers, and all the mixed population of the waterfront. They drifted along the line of seats made gay with the dresses of the summer boarders, and one of the town officials patrolled and perspired till he shone all over with pure civic pride. Shane had met him for five minutes a few days before, and between the two there was entire understanding. "'Well, Mr. Shane, and what do you think of our city? Yes, madam, you can sit anywhere you please. You have this thing out west, I presume?' "'Yes, but we aren't as old as you.' "'That's so, of course.' You ought to have been at the exercises when we celebrated our two hundred and fiftieth birthday. I tell you, Mr. Shane, the old city did herself credit. So I heard. It pays, too. What's the matter with the town that it don't have a first-class hotel, though? Right over there to the left, Pedro. Heaps of room for you and your crowd. Why, that's what I tell em all the time, Mr. Shane. There's big money in it but I presume that don't affect you any. What we want is—' A heavy hand fell on his broadcloth shoulder, and the flushed skipper of a Portland coal and ice coaster spun him half round. "'What in thunder do you fellows mean by clapping the law on the town when all decent men are at sea this way? Heh? Town's dry as a bone, and smells a sight worse than since I quit. Might a left us one saloon for soft drinks, anyway.' "'Don't seem to have hindered your nourishment this morning, Carson. I'll go into the politics of it later. Sit down by the door, and think over your arguments till I come back.' "'What good's arguments to me? In Michelin, champagne's eighteen dollars a case, and—' The skipper lurched into his seat as an organ prelude silenced him. "'Our new organ,' said the official proudly to Shane, "'cost us four thousand dollars, too.' We'll have to get back to high license next year to pay for it. I wasn't going to let the ministers have all the religion at their convention. Those are some of our orphans standing up to sing. My wife taught them. See you again later, Mr. Shane. I'm wanted on the platform. High, clear, and true, children's voices bore down the last noise of those settling into their places. O ye works of the Lord, bless ye the Lord, praise him and magnify him for ever the women throughout the hall leaned forward to look as the reiterated cadences filled the air mrs shane with some others began to breathe short she had hardly imagined there were so many widows in the world and instinctively searched for harvey he had found the we're here's at the back of the audience and was standing as by right 
between Dan and Disco. Uncle Salters, returned the night before with Penn, from Pamlico Sound, received him suspiciously. "'Ain't your folk gone yet?' he grunted. "'What are you doing here, young feller?' "'O oh, ye seas and floods, bless ye the Lord, praise him, and magnify him for ever.' "'Ain't he good right?' said Dan. "'He's been there, same as the rest of us.' "'Not in them clothes,' Salters snarled. "'Shut your head, Salters,' said Disco. "'Your bile's gone back on you. Stay right where you are, Harve.' Then up and spoke the orator of the occasion, another pillar of the municipality, bidding the world welcome to Gloucester, and incidentally pointing out wherein Gloucester excelled the rest of the world. Then he turned to the sea-wealth of the city, and spoke of the price that must be paid for the yearly harvest. They would hear later the names of their lost dead, one hundred and seventeen of them. The widows stared a little, and looked at one another here. Gloucester could not boast any overwhelming mills or factories. Her sons worked for such wage as the sea gave, and they all knew that neither George's nor the banks were cow-pastures. The utmost that folk ashore could accomplish was to help the widows and the orphans, and after a few general remarks he took this opportunity of thanking, in the name of the city, those who had so public-spiritedly consented to participate in the exercises of the occasion. "'I just despise the begging pieces in it,' growled Disco. "'It don't give folk a fair notion of us.' If folk won't be forehanded and put by when they've the chance returned salters it stands in the nature of things they have to be shamed you take warning by that young feller riches endureth but for a season if you scatter them around on luxuries but to lose everything everything said penn what can you do then once i the watery blue eyes stared up and down, as looking for something to steady them. Once I read, in a book, I think, of a boat where every one was run down, except some one, and he said to me, "'Shucks!' said Salter, cutting in. "'You read a little less, and take more interest in your vittles, and you'll come nearer earning your keep, Pen.' Harvey jammed among the fishermen felt a creepy, crawly, tingling thrill that began in the back of his neck, and ended at his boots. He was cold, too, though it was a stifling day. "'That the actress from Philadelphia?' said Disco Troop, scowling at the platform. "'You've fixed it about old man Ireson, hain't you, Harve? You know why, now.' It was not Ireson's ride that the woman delivered, but some sort of poem about a fishing-port called Brixham and a fleet of trawlers beating in against storm by night, while the women made a guiding fire at the head of the quay with everything they could lay hands on. They took the grandam's blanket, who shivered and bade them go, they took the baby's cradle, who could not say them no. Whew! said Dan, peering over Long Jack's shoulder. That's great! Must have been expensive, though. Groundhog case, said the Galway man. Badly lighted port, Danny. And knew not all the while if they were lighting a bonfire, or only a funeral pile. 
The wonderful voice took hold of people by their heart-strings, and when she told how the drenched crews were flung ashore, living and dead, and they carried the bodies to the glare of the fires, asking, "'Child, is this your father?' or, "'Wife, is this your man?' You could hear hard breathing all over the benches. And when the boats of Brixham go out to face the gales, think of the love that travels like light upon their sails. There was very little applause when she finished. The women were looking for their handkerchiefs, and many of the men stared at the ceiling with shiny eyes. Hmm, said Salters, that'd cost you a dollar to hear at any theatre, maybe two. Some folk, I presume, can afford it. Seems downright waste to me. Now, how in Jerusalem did Cap Bart Edwards strike adrift here? No keeping him under, said an Eastport man behind. He's a poet, and he's bound to say his piece. Comes from down our way, too. He did not say that Captain B. Edwards had striven for five consecutive years to be allowed to recite a piece of his own composition on Gloucester Memorial Day. An amused and exhausted committee had at last given him his desire. The simplicity and utter happiness of the old man, as he stood up in his very best Sunday clothes, won the audience ere he opened his mouth. They sat unmurmuring through seven-and-thirty hatchet-made verses, describing at fullest length the loss of the schooner Joan Haskin off the Georges in the gale of 1867, and when he came to an end they shouted with one kindly throat. A far-sighted Boston reporter slid away for a full copy of the epic and an interview with the author, so that Earth had nothing more to offer Captain Bart Edwards, ex-whaler, shipwright, master-fisherman, and poet, in the seventy-third year of his age. "'Now I call that sensible,' said an Eastport man. "'I've been over that ground with his writing, just as he read it, in my two hands, and I can testify that he's got it all in.' "'If Dan here couldn't do better than that with one hand before breakfast, he ought to be switched,' said Salters, upholding the honour of Massachusetts on general principles. Not but what I'm free to own he's considerable literary, for Maine. Still— Guess Uncle Salter's going to die this trip. First compliment he's ever paid me, Dan sniggered. What's wrong with you, Harve? You act all quiet, and you look greenish. Feeling sick? Don't know what's the matter with me, Harvey replied. Seems as if my insides were too big for my outsides. I'm all crowded up and shivery. Dyspepsy? Pshaw! Too bad! We'll wait for the readin', and then we'll quit and catch the tide." The widows, they were nearly all of that season's making, braced themselves rigidly like people going to be shot in cold blood, for they knew what was coming. The summer border girls in pink and blue shirt-waists stopped tittering over Captain Edward's wonderful poem, and looked back to see why all was silent. The fisherman pressed forward as that town official who had talked with Shane bobbed up on the platform and began to read the year's list of losses, dividing them into months. Last September's casualties were mostly single men and strangers, but his voice rang very loud in the stillness of the hall. September ninth, 
Schooner Flory Anderson lost, with all aboard, off the Georges. Reuben Pittman, master, fifty, single, Main Street, city. Emil Olson, nineteen, single, 329 Hammond Street, city, Denmark. Oscar Stanborg, single, twenty-five, Sweden. Carl Stanborg, single, twenty-eight, Main Street, city. Pedro, supposed Madeira, single, Kane's Boarding House, city. Joseph Welsh, alias Joseph Wright, thirty, St. John's, Newfoundland. No, Augusty, Maine, a voice cried from the body of the hall. He shipped from St. John's, said the reader, looking to see. I know it, he belongs in Augusty, my nevy. The reader made a penciled correction on the margin of the list, and resumed. Same schooner, Charlie Ritchie, Liverpool, Nova Scotia, 33, single. Albert May, 267 Rogers Street, City, 27, single. September 27th. Orvin Dollard, 30, married, drowned in dory off Eastern Point. That shot went home, for one of the widows flinched where she sat, clasping and unclasping her hands. Mrs. Shane, who had been listening with wide-opened eyes, threw up her head and choked. Dan's mother, a few seats to the right, saw and heard and quickly moved to her side. The reading went on. By the time they reached the January and February wrecks, the shots were falling thick and fast, and the widows drew breath between their teeth. February 14th. Schooner Harry Randolph, dismasted on the way home from Newfoundland, Asa Musi, married, 32, Main Street, City, lost overboard. February 3rd, schooner Gilbert Hope, went astray in Dory. Robert Beaven, 29, married, native of Pubnico, Nova Scotia. But his wife was in the hall. They heard a low cry, as though a little animal had been hit. It was stifled at once, and a girl staggered out of the hall. She had been hoping against hope for months, because some who have gone adrift in dories have been miraculously picked up by deep-sea sailing-ships. Now she had her certainty, and Harvey could see the policeman on the sidewalk hailing a hack for her. "'It's fifty cents to the depot,' the driver began, but the policeman held up his hand. "'But I'm going there anyway. Jump right in.' Look at here, Alf. You don't pull me next time my lamps ain't lit, see?" The side-door closed on the patch of bright sunshine, and Harvey's eyes turned again to the reader and his endless list. April 19th. Schooner Mamie Douglas, lost on the banks with all hands. Edward Canton, 43, Master, Married, City. D. Hawkins, alias Williams, 34. Married, Shelburne, Nova Scotia. G. W. Clay, colored, twenty-eight. Married, city. And so on, and so on. Great lumps were rising in Harvey's throat, and his stomach reminded him of the day when he fell from the liner. May tenth, schooner. We're here. The blood tingled all over him. 
Otto Svensson, twenty, single, city, lost overboard. Once more a low, tearing cry from somewhere at the back of the hall. She shouldn't a come, she shouldn't a come, said Long Jack with a cluck of pity. Don't scrouge, Harve, grunted Dan. Harvey heard that much, but the rest was all darkness spotted with fiery wheels. Disco leaned forward and spoke to his wife, where she sat with one arm round Mrs. Shane, and the other holding down the snatching, catching, ringed hands. "'Lean your head down, right down,' she whispered. "'It'll go off in a minute.' "'I can't. I d d don't Oh, let me—' Mrs. Shane did not at all know what she said. "'You must,' Mrs. Troop repeated. "'Your boy's just fainted dead away. They do that some when they're getting their growth. Wish to tend to him? We can get out this side. Quite quiet. You come right along with me. Pshaw, my dear, we're both women, I guess. We must tend to our menfolk. Come.' The weir-hears promptly went through the crowd as a bodyguard, and it was a very white and shaken Harvey that they propped up on a bench in an ante-room. "'Favours his ma,' was Mrs. Troop's only comment, as the mother bent over her boy. "'How do you suppose he could ever stand it?' she cried indignantly to Shane, who had said nothing at all. "'It was horrible, horrible! We shouldn't have come! It's wrong and wicked! It—' It isn't right. Why, why couldn't they put these things in the papers where they belong? Are, are you better, darling?" That made Harvey very properly ashamed. "'Oh, I'm all right, I guess,' he said, struggling to his feet, with a broken giggle. "'Must have been something I ate for breakfast.' "'Coffee, perhaps,' said Shane, whose face was all in hard lines, as though it had been cut out of bronze. We won't go back again." "'Guess would be bows well to get down to the wharf,' said Disco. "'It's close in among with them dagoes, and the fresh air will fresh Mrs. Shane up.' Harvey announced that he never felt better in his life, but it was not till he saw the weir here, fresh from the lumper's hands at Wolverman's Wharf, that he lost his all-overish feelings in a queer mixture of pride and sorrowfulness. Other people, summer boarders and such-like, played about in cat-boats or looked at the sea from pier-heads, but he understood things from the inside, more things than he could begin to think about. None the less he could have sat down and howled because the little schooner was going off. Mrs. Shane simply cried, and cried every step of the way, and said most extraordinary things to Mrs. Troop, who babied her till Dan, who had not been babied since he was six, whistled aloud. And so the old crowd, Harvey felt like the most ancient of mariners, dropped into the old schooner among the battered dories, while Harvey slipped the stern fast from the pierhead, and they slid her along the wharf-side with their hands. Everyone wanted to say so much that no one said anything in particular. Harvey bade Dan take care of Uncle Salter's sea-boots and Penn's dory-anchor and Long Jack entreated Harvey to remember his lessons in seamanship. But the jokes fell flat in the presence of the two women, and it is hard to be funny with green harbour-water widening between good friends. "'Up jibs and foresail!' 
shouted Disco, getting to the wheel, as the wind took her. "'See you later, Harve. Dunno, but I come near thinkin' a heap of you and your folks.' Then she glided beyond earshot, and they sat down to watch her up the harbour. And still Mrs. Shane wept. "'Pshaw, my dear,' said Mrs. Troop. "'We're both women, I guess. Like as not it'll ease your heart to have you cry out. God, he knows it never done me a mite of good, but then he knows I've had something to cry for. Now it was a few years later, and upon the other edge of America, that a young man came through the clammy sea-fog up a windy street which is flanked with most expensive houses built of wood to imitate stone. To him, as he was standing by a hammered iron gate, entered on horseback, and the horse would have been cheap at a thousand dollars, another young man. And this is what they said. "'Hello, Dan. Hello, Harve. What's the best with you? Well, I'm so as to be that kind of animal called second mate this trip. Ain't you most through with that triple invoice college of yours? Gettin' that way. I tell you, the Leland Stanford Junior isn't a circumstance to the old we're here, but I'm comin' into the business for keeps next fall. Meanin' our packets? Nothin' else. You just wait till I get my knife into you, Dan. I'm going to make the old lion lie down and cry when I take hold. I'll risk it, said Dan, with a brotherly grin, as Harvey dismounted and asked whether he was coming in. That's what I took the cable for, but, say, is the doctor anywheres around? I'll drown that crazy nigger some day, his one cussed joke and all. There was a low, triumphant chuckle as the ex-cook of the weir here came out of the fog to take the horse's bridle. He allowed no one but himself to attend to any of Harvey's wants. "'Thick as the banks, ain't it, doctor?' said Dan, propitiatingly. But the coal-black Celt with the second sight did not see fit to reply till he had tapped Dan on the shoulder, and for the twentieth time croaked the old, old prophecy in his ear. "'Master, man, man, master,' said he. You remember, Dan Troop, what I said, on the we're here? Well, I won't go so far as to deny that it do look like it as things stand at present, said Dan. She was an able packet, and one way and another I owe her a heap, her and Dad. Me too, quoth Harvey Shane. End of chapter. End of book. Thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.